Section 25 of The Normans in Europe by Arthur Henry Johnson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain, read by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 16, Henry I, 1100 to 1135, Part 2. At this moment, in 1120, the death of Henry's son William threatened to undo the painful work of years. As he was returning in triumph to England, the ship in which William sailed was wrecked off Barfleur. The prince had managed to gain a boat and pushed off from the sinking ship, but the cries of his sister recalled him to the wreck. The boat was capsized by the rush of the despairing crew, and one alone survived to bring the news to Henry. Crushed by this sudden loss, Henry is said never to have smiled again. The death of the prince was a severe domestic affliction, but that was not all. He was Henry's only son, and no woman had yet ruled in England. Thus the hopes of seeing his family established in England received a cruel blow. The ties of interest which bound Folk of Anjou to Henry were destroyed by the death of William, who had been married to the daughter of the Angevin Count, and Fulk once more took up the cause of William Clito in 1124. His daughter Sibylla was affianced to the pretender. Louis VI again threatened to join the coalition, and Henry was forced to engage in another war in Normandy. But fortune favored him once more. Fulk shortly after resigned his estates to his eldest son, and marrying the heiress of the kingdom of Jerusalem, accepted the precarious crown. The rebels were discomfited, and three years afterwards, in 1128, the death of William Clito rid Henry of the only competitor for the Duchy of Normandy. Maine, which had been a source of continual trouble to William and his sons, was definitely secured, and Henry's rights as lord over Brittany were acknowledged. The prophecy of William was now fulfilled, and Henry enjoyed a larger dominion than that enjoyed by the conqueror himself. Normandy and Maine were at last definitely united to England. These continental dominions formed part of the English kingdom until they were finally lost in the reign of John. But this triumph, though increasing the power of the English king, was not a benefit to the English people. It once more made England part of a great continental kingdom to which her own interests were likely to be sacrificed. It gave the nobles increased power, the results of which were seen in the succeeding reigns. During that of Stephen, for instance, the long wars were due chiefly to the nobles who hoped thereby to increase their independence, and in the reign of Henry II, the power they had thus gained was once more used to rebel against the strong anti-feudal government of the king. Lastly, English nationality could never be established until England was split off from Normandy and the continent and left alone to work out her national life for herself. Secure at last in the possession of Normandy and England, Henry now turned his attention to the question of the succession. Matilda, his wife, had died in 1118. He had afterwards married Adelais of Louvain. His new wife, however, bore him no child, and it remained to secure the succession of Matilda, his daughter, who, on the death of her husband, the emperor, Henry V, had returned a widow to her father's court. 
the barons were ordered to swear allegiance to her, and shortly afterwards, in 1128, anxious to secure the alliance of Anjou, Henry married her to Geoffrey, the son of Folk. By this means he hoped to win the friendship of the House of Anjou, always so hostile to the Norman power, as he had done before by the marriage of his son William. But the barons declared that their oath of allegiance had been given on the promise that Matilda should not marry a foreigner without their consent, and the hereditary jealousy of the Normans for the Angevin caused many of them to abandon Matilda for the cause of Stephen on Henry's death. Henry was still in Normandy arranging the disputes caused by the marriage when he died in December 1135, it is said from eating too heartily of a dish of lampreys. Amid the constant wars which had disturbed his reign, Henry had found time to improve the administration of the country, and his reign of thirty-six years forms a prelude to that of Henry II, in this as in many other respects. In fact, the three reigns of William I, Henry I, and Henry II, the three great organizers of feudal England, stand closely together. In Henry's quarrel with Anselm, the same principles were involved as in William's dispute with the Pope, and these were again to appear in the quarrel of Becket with Henry II, though the combatants had somewhat changed their ground. We have seen the quarrels between the king and his feudal nobles, which had begun in the reign of William, continued in that of Henry I. The reign of Stephen undid much of Henry's work which was left for Henry II to complete. In this struggle, the kings, in spite of the arbitrary character of their rule, had been striving for the good of the country. The feudal nobles, aiming to establish their independence at the cost of the nation's welfare. It was well for England that her early kings were so strong, for else she might have suffered from the evils of a continental feudalism, and her history might have been a counterpart to that of France. In the administration of justice and in the organization of the executive power, the same connection between the reigns is seen. The same anti-feudal tendency appears, and one reign is illustrative of the other. Henry's father had continued the Anglo-Saxon local courts of the Hundred and the Shire. During the reign of William Rufus they had been suffered to fall into disuse. The nobles probably had tried to encroach upon their jurisdiction or to get rid of them entirely, and under Ranulf Flambar they had been used for the purposes of fiscal extortion and thus became objects of suspicion to the people themselves. These courts Henry now revived, and promised that for the future, when he had need of money, he would not demand it at the ordinary sessions, but summon these courts especially for the purpose. The local courts thus revived, it was necessary to draw them closer to the central court of justice, the Curia Regis, introduced by William his father. The means resorted to were these— the duties of the Curia Regis and its financial committee were systematized, the offices of the justiciary and those of his staff of justices organized. By his circuits to the local courts, their dependence was secured. Already the justices, his subordinates, began to take his place, and making their heirs or circuits chiefly to superintend the collection of the royal dues, and therefore in their office as barons of the exchequer, 
led the way for the definite establishment of justices in heir by Henry II. In some cases, the justices were made sheriffs of several counties, and thus presiding in the regular sessions of the shire courts, connected them closely with the central court of the king. To carry on this work, new officers were required, and Henry, neglecting the old nobility, who had, by their continual rebellions, forfeited all title to his confidence, turned to the lower ranks of the noble order. Thence he created a class of ministerial families, who furnished the sheriffs of the counties, the justices of the curia regis, and the barons of the exchequer, and greatly facilitated Henry's policy. They were indeed unpopular, but for that very reason they served Henry's purpose all the better. They were bound by interest to the crown. They were not too powerful to be brought to justice, and their acts were closely criticized by nobles and by people. The most important of these new ministers was Roger, Bishop of Salisbury. Henry had first met him when a poor priest in Normandy, attracted, as the story runs, by the wit which the poor priest had shown in discerning his impatience to hasten to the hunt, and satisfying it by shortening the service, Henry made him his steward and chaplain. Here his great powers of administration were displayed, and finally he rose to be Bishop of Salisbury and Justiciary. The choice was wisely made. To Roger is chiefly due the fiscal organization of the office and of the Curia Regis, the control of which remained in his family for nearly a century. While thus advancing the administration of justice and introducing order and routine, Henry was not regardless of other interests. His charters to the towns mark a step in the growth of municipal life and a wise recognition of their claims. His police, too, is good. The system of frank pledge was maintained and developed. By this, everyone had to find a surety. If he was a vassal, his lord was answerable. If a freeman, the association of freemen to whom he belonged. The false coiners were heavily punished and a new coinage issued. In every way, the reign of Henry I was a gain to England. It marks a distinct advance in the growth of national life and in the progress of arbitrary but good administrative government. And it is to Henry's credit that he has earned the title of the Lion of Righteousness. But withal, Henry was an irresponsible despot and loved to be so. With all his father's military and administrative sagacity, he was more cruel and perhaps even more tyrannical. He refused to give up the forests. Those who dared gainsay him or rebel against him were punished with merciless rigor, and Henry would listen to no will but his own. His great judicial reforms were probably to be attributed to no higher motive than the love of order and the desire to increase his revenue by the fines of the courts. Hence his heavy taxation, a continual source of lament in the chronicles of the reign. The manifold taxes never ceased. He who had any property was bereaved of it by heavy taxes, and he who had none starved with hunger. His wars in Normandy, his wars against his nobles, all are to be referred to his overmastering selfishness. But fortunately for England, that selfishness was clear-sighted and far-sighted, and his own private aims tallied with the interest of the nation. The nobles were his enemies, he destroyed them, 
and in doing so destroyed the enemies of the nation. Anarchy was hateful to him. He substituted the reign of routine, and thus prepared the way for law, which might in time itself set a limit to royal responsibility. Thus, while the people could not love him, they respected him, and they feared him, and this accounts for the varying characters left of him by the chroniclers. Men thought differently about him, says Henry of Huntingdon, and after he was dead spoke their minds. Some spoke of splendor, wisdom, prudence, wealth, and victories, some of cruelty, avarice, and lust. The lower classes were very miserable throughout his reign. The constant wars rendered taxation necessary. A series of bad harvests and stormy seasons made the burden heavier. Henry, in spite of the support given him by the English, was at heart a foreigner. No Englishman found a place among his ministers. No Englishman found preferment in the church. The two nations were gradually uniting, so that in the reign of Henry II we are told it was difficult to distinguish between them. But yet the English found no recognition of their claims at the hand of their Norman king. And yet, while the English complained, they instinctively supported the king, acknowledged that he sought for peace, and saw that their only hope lay in strengthening the royal power and thereby crushing the feudal nobility. Inflexible in the rigor of justice, he kept his native people in quiet and his barons according to their deserts, says William of Malmesbury, while Henry of Huntington tells us that in the evil times that followed, the very acts of tyranny or of royal willfulness seemed in comparison with the worst state of things present most excellent. Henry was the last of those great Norman kings who, with all their vices, their cruelty and lust, displayed great talents of organization and adaptation, guided England with a wise, if a strong hand, through the days of her youth, and by their instinctive, though selfish, love of order, paved the way for the ultimate rise of a more stable yet freer government. That, however, was yet in the womb of the future, and the Norman period closes in the anarchy of Stephen's reign. Of that reign we do not intend to treat. It forms rather the prelude to the reign of Henry II. The Norman era really ends with Henry I, for Stephen was only a Norman by the spindle side, as was Henry II the Angevin, and throughout the reign all constitutional history is at a standstill. It is a period unexampled in English history, a period during which England suffered all the ills of continental feudalism. Amidst the anarchy of the Civil War, the nobles covered the country with their castles, set authority at defiance, fostered the continuance of discord for their own ends, and strove to establish their selfish independence. In the misery which ensued, the lower classes, both Norman and English, were learning their identity of interest against such men as these, with whom they felt that no truce should be kept. Painfully but surely, they were drawn together into a close national unity, and to an intense yearning for peace, which led them, one and all, to welcome the strong rule of Henry II, and any government which might crush out forever this hateful continental feudalism. Thus the reign of Stephen, though it closes the Norman period in sorrow and shame, was yet a valuable discipline for the country, 
and formed a secure basis for the reforms of Henry II, who took up the work where Henry I had left it and completed it. We have now traced the course of the great Scandinavian exodus, which beginning in the ninth century stretched over the whole of Europe. Having briefly sketched the fortunes of the less important branches, we have devoted especial attention to the settlements in France which assumed the specific name of Norman. After following their fortunes in France, we have accompanied them in their various settlements in Spain, Italy, and England. Finally, concentrating our attention on the latter country, where their genius receives its most forcible development, we have traced the connection between it and Normandy, and in greater detail drawn out their influence on our country and the principles of our government. With the reign of Henry I, the Norman kings reached their highest pitch of power. After him their kingdom passed away, first to the house of Blois, then to that of Anjou. With both these houses they had long been connected. With both, an hereditary and deadly hostility had existed from the earliest times. But though the Norman power thus slipped away from the direct descendants of Rollo, the Norman influence was not destroyed in England. They never were driven out. They coalesced with the English and lost their individuality in the common nationality, but they long enjoyed the chief positions in the state, and the Norman administration and executive machinery still lies embedded in our constitution side by side with the local institutions of the Anglo-Saxons. It will be well at the close of our survey to cast our eyes abroad and take a last glance at the condition of the other Scandinavian or Norman powers. The continents of Denmark, Sweden, and Norway had long settled down into organized communities, and for half a century had not troubled Europe. Norway still enjoyed her nominal sway over the Orkneys, the Shetlands, and the districts of Sutherland and Caithness in Scotland, these not being ceded to the lowlands till the middle of the 15th century. In Iceland, the Free Republic was on the point of being dismembered by the rise of an aristocracy, and one century later was once more to be occupied by Norway. To the west of Scotland lay the sovereignty of the Isles, consisting of the Hebrides and other islands along the coast, as well as certain settlements in Anglesey, Man, and Ireland. This kingdom, under the lords of the Isles, owed allegiance to Norway, but was virtually independent. Of these, Anglesey and Ireland fell to England in the reign of Henry II in 1266. Man long enjoyed semi-independence under its own lords, while the Hebrides were ceded to Scotland in the latter half of the 13th century. In Italy, the Norman kingdom of Apulia and Sicily still belonged to the descendants of Robert Guiscard and maintained constant intercourse with England. Under this line of kings it continued until the end of the 12th century, when their dominion passed away with the hand of Constance the Norman heiress to the emperor Henry VI. In Palestine, the Norman nobles still held some fiefs, and the Frankish name was to continue there, but with fast declining power until the end of the 13th century in 1291. In Russia, the descendants of Rurik still sat on the throne of Kiev until they were subdued by the Tartar invasion of the same century, 1240. 
Thus the end of the Norman period in England nearly synchronizes with that of their rule elsewhere. They had been the leaders during a most important epoch of European history. They had seen the foundation of most of the future great European powers. For two centuries at least they had been the most influential people in Europe. They had formed the nucleus of cohesion amidst the fluctuating state of European nationalities. Wherever they went, they had shown themselves great warriors, founders, organizers, and administrators. With extraordinary powers of adapting themselves to outward and altered circumstances, they had, while adopting the systems of their conquered subjects, developed them, added to them, and perfected them. To them France owes the establishment of her national kings, nay, almost her very existence as the kingdom of France. Southern Italy, a dynasty under which she enjoyed a prosperity denied her since. Russia, a long line of powerful and clever princes. Iceland, a free republic. England, a stern and harsh schooling indeed, but a useful one. Stern law, the suppression of anarchy, the establishment of order and excellent administration, all essential preliminaries of true progress. And now their work is over. The Norman period is fast waning. New ideas, new forms of government, new systems are to arise, and the great impulse which originally had come from the Scandinavian continents is exhausted. End of section 25